0: That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's take a look back to 1965. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. That's right, we have shout-outs going out to Damien and Daniel, Eric, Joe, Marisol, Aaron, Alexandra, Andrea, April, Ashley, Becca, Brandon, Chuck, Dan, Donald, Dorian, Isabel, Jason, Lauren and Phil Mangano, Lauren Strawn, hey, howdy, hi, happy new year, Lindsay, Manning, Martin, Michael, Mildog, Robin, the Sean Bishop, Aloha, Sherry Jackson, Todd Jamie, Elijah Hendrickson, Trudy, Vanessa, Veronica, Vicki, Andrew, Art Muffin, Autumn, Caroline, Carolyn, Cindy, Derek, Ezra, George, Harley, Heidi, Roger, Ian, Jeff, T, hey, howdy, hi, Juliana, Carrie, Stone, Connie, Christopher, Lawrence, Leo, Liam, Loki, Megan, Melissa, Nanashi, Paul, Ricardo, Russell, Seth, Austin Suzanne, Tim, Voidtech, Audra, Bob, Cindy, Devin, Elizabeth, GamerFan, Mark, Jade, Jerry Kenneth, Kim, Laura Pitts, Melody, Paula, Ricardo, Scott, Tasha, Terminal Animal, What's That, Will, Alicia, and Jen. With, of course, special shout-outs going out to Joe Teague and, as always, Stitch. Oh, I also have one more special shout-out. I have a birthday shout-out to Zelos. Zelos is a new listener. Uh, He's a very cool guy. And he actually has a bunch of cool paranormal stories that uh, I will be sharing on his behalf coming up soon. Alrighty, head on over to storeenvy.com. Look for Paranormal Almanac for all your Paranormal Almanac merch needs. Head over to patreon.com if you want to be like these patrons. You might be thinking, hey, Kurt, we haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks. Well, for the regular listener, yep, you're right. I took two weeks off. For the patrons, I only took one week off. I gave them a special Christmas Day episode, recorded it on Christmas morning. That was my Christmas gift to them because without them, this show would not be happening. I can guarantee you that by now. All righty, let's head on over to Paranormal News. Strange things happen every day. Keep a watch out and be on your way. That's just the way the universe moves. But now it's time for... That's a good one. That's such a good one. I'm so happy I managed to get all those files back on there. If you want to send your own paranormal news bumper music, just email me at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. I would love to hear them and love to play them on the show. Also, if you have your own personal paranormal stories, email me at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Another thing that I would love to read. righty, this is an all UFO paranormal news First up in paranormal news, Naples man can't explain what he saw flying over Naples beach. This is in Florida. We see all kinds of things in the sky, but one Naples man is perplexed by what he saw on Wednesday. Oh, it's off to a rough start already. They were kind of glowing and flickering a little bit, said Matt Krause. It was Wednesday, Wednesday evening when he and his wife looked up. They didn't see the moon, but instead a single bright light. News lights appeared near it, and they got very, very bright at that point. New lights, sorry, not news light. New lights appeared near it, and they got very, very bright at that point. There were four or five of them. They kind of moved in different directions. According to him, the lights didn't make any sound and seemed to be hovering in place. What I can't explain is why there were so many bright lights, why they were so bright, why they were stationary, and one of them was stationary for 15 minutes. Southwest Florida International Airport shared if anything abnormal was going on, they deferred us to the FAA. The FAA said we'd have to ask the military. However... The Naples uh, Air, the Naples Airport Authority said there wasn't anything out of the ordinary on the radar that night, but noted it could be Chinese lanterns. Those are illegal within the city limits. That's what I'm going to guess they are um, just based on the photo. I haven't clicked on the actual video yet based on the photo. I'm going to say, yeah, they're uh, Chinese lanterns. But let me see if this is actually a video of it. It might be a plane, or maybe even a helicopter, but one man says he believes he saw a UFO. Alright, I-, I don't need to hear her anymore. So get to the actual video. Let's see. That's, oh it's actually him, alright fine. Green a little bit. It was Wednesday evening when Matt Krause and his wife looked up, but they didn't see the moon. Instead they saw a single bright light. Then new lights appeared near it and they were got really really bright at that point. And there were about four of them, and they kind of moved in different directions. He snapped these pictures, saying whatever oh, these are. Oh, so it's are, just going right, well, it to be photos. All right, well, I'm Yeah, they do look like Chinese lanterns to me, but I can't say for sure because the photos aren't that great. They say they do look; it does look a little suspicious. I always feel like there's something out there. So that another person at Naples Beach, uh, people sighting UFOs. It's some; it's usually some sort of military craft or something like that. I'd have to see it to believe it, physically be there to see it. So there's a bunch of different things. People are saying it could be anything from aircraft anomalies, drones, or covert military ops. Or Chinese lanterns. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news. This this is what I'm excited about. Close encounter. I photographed a bulbous-headed naked alien as the creature ran past my hunting camera in a notorious UFO hotspot. That's right, a hunter claims that he caught a naked alien on camera as the creature ran past his trail camera in a notorious UFO hotspot. Uh, It was caught in a remote area of Montana. The gentleman's name was Donald Bromley. He snapped the picture in an area known as Redgate, which is claimed to be awash with paranormal activity like UFOs. He said at first he thought it was a person, but the more he looked at the grainy image, the more convinced he became it was something out of this world. The strange image has surfaced online, and, uh, oh, they're just talking about all, like, the government looking for UFOs. I don't care about any of that. You all know that. He told KXLF, the more I look at it, it was just odd. It was out of place, and everything just matches the alien persona, the big bulbous head. You can tell he has no clothes. It's kind of a transparent being. It's just very rich in the paranormal field, like the UFOs, lights in the sky, unexplainable things. He added that residents have been seeing really bizarre objects flying across the sky out of nowhere. Okay, I'm going to look at the photo. One, I can't tell you that this thing is naked. Two, it doesn't look transparent. It looks like it's in motion. Three, it looks, yeah, no, it does look bulbous. I'll give him the bulbous head. It's an odd trail cam photo that if I saw this, knowing that there was nobody else out there, yeah, it would scare the crap out of me. I'm not going to lie. All righty, I'll put that up over on the Facebook page so you guys can see the weird, naked, bulbous alien. Moving on to the next story. Are UFOs over Connecticut growing bolder? We may never know. Then why write the story? Connecticut—it's been up and down for—it's been an up and down year for unidentified flying objects. Politics haven't stopped Connecticut skywatchers from racing to the database of the National UFO Reporting Center every time they spy something awry in the sky. Residents of the nutmeg state average more than an entry a week—that's crazy. Where the reports on possible extraterrestrial jaunts and patrols are classified they said that this the the reports are up year over year and they they say that the uh that it continues to be Connecticut it, that is continues to be a stomping ground more and more every year for the past dozen years they said a couple watched a glowing triangle shape move slowly across move, move slowly across from them i think they mean away from it move slowly away from them as they drove down a street just before 6 p.m. on september 6th I watched it closely as we drove and can say I truly have never seen anything like that in my life. The uh, most, uh, nearly 100% of the entries are flybys, but one Oxford resident reported a most unusual drop-off. In what is the most full-on Hollywood report from the last few months, the Skywatcher reported witnessing three bright but silent objects hovering for about 30, 30 to 40 seconds and then a bright flash. Almost like the light was scanning from front to back, but the light was intense, almost as bright as a spotlight on a helicopter. Then I was able to see something or someone lowered out of one of the crafts, into the field, across the street, and then quickly go back up into the craft. Shortly after, the three bright lights flashed and disappeared, but we could still see light trails behind them, and still without making any noise at all. One eyewitness said there was an aura or haze around the UFO, which left a trail and emitted beams. So, uh, yeah, a bunch of crazy, let's see, uh, let's, there's another one from December 4th. A UPS driver in Collinsville described seeing the d- maneuvers uh, resembling a geese in a flock, perfectly line of 20 to 30 red dots, speeding up and slowing down, overlapping each other. Whatever it or they were, they were ascending, approximately a 40-degree angle from our position. While continuing the ascent, speeding up and slowing down, overlapping one by one, dimmed and vanished as if not going too far up to see anymore, the positions in the line were not graduated. I worked in aviation as an active-duty marine, marine, and I've never seen anything like it. It's notable that there was no sound. The only way I could describe the speed is like the speeds of an F-18 in burn, but the massive drops in speed to return to the rest of the line speed was shocking. Okay, so that's definitely not a drone. I was thinking drone until he got that point. Around the same time over Collinsville, a Norwalk sky watcher reported a whole bunch of lights that seemed to be connected together somehow in a straight line, and it was moving and then disappeared. Two separate reports of a silent cigar-shaped light craft hovering over Woodbury also filed the same evening. Still more cigar and uh, Tic Tac shapes were reported over Greenwich and Suffield in previous nights. A month earlier, on November 11th, around 5.13 in the morning, another Woodbury resident witnessed a bright orange glowing object that resembled an intense sunrise. The orange fireball continued to move behind a hill, and the sky returned to its normal nighttime color. Ooh, I just got an earthquake alert. Hold on one second. Oh, it's nowhere near me. The uh, orange fire bar continued to move behind a hill and sky returned to its normal nighttime color. Three more of the orange fireballs were spotted over Southington a week ago. They're saying that uh, there's a whole lot more in those reports. So it sounds like Connecticut is the place to be if you guys want to see some UFOs. Okay, up next in paranormal news, UFO sighting witness has a hilarious reaction what is that y'all we finna die oh my god what is that y'all what the fuck is that yeah what the fuck is that what the fuck um yeah so, oh my god y'all okay. what the fuck it's a triangle of three, it may three be lights. some more coming because they've been coming in streaks what the fuck is that Oh, what is okay. That, All right. So it's, it's you're starting die. over again. All right. So it's three triangular lights. They're in the sky. This was uh, reported by TMZ or sent into TMZ, I should say. And as you can tell by the woman, um, she just wants to know what the f it is. What's going on in there? I apologize for the swearing. If you guys are saying what happened to you not swearing, well, that was in October or maybe November, but it's it's January, y'all, and I didn't swear. She did. All righty. Earlier this month, we obtained a video of swarm lights across the airspace above Chino Hills, California. They look like giant orbs in the heaven. And now they're being seen, uh, let's see, December 27th. Where was this at? Uh, Above Memphis, Tennessee. That's right. Above Memphis, Tennessee. So there you go. What the F was that? I'll post that up in both uh, Facebook page groups as well. 2021 was so weird that big UFO news totally went over our heads. Not our heads, not anybody listening to this show, because we talked about it every time there was an article. That's right. Um, I don't care about Stanley Kubrick and how he got the model for UFOs. Basically, I'm just going to skip ahead to the the good stuff. They're saying that uh, 2021 was a turning point in UFO history starting at the very beginning of the year and moving on. And especially in June, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released a nine-page report. You guys know about that. I did an episode about that. And then it just continued on from there. So this person, who considers themselves a skeptic, is even saying, seems to us like people aren't paying attention and disclosure is here. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've been saying. Little by little, disclosure its going to be out there. You're going to hear about it. Well, you guys are already hearing about it because you're paying attention to the right podcast. Oh, by the way, I'd like to thank everybody from around the world right now that's making the podcast blow up. I mean, I'm getting uh, top 20s in the UK, in Australia, New Zealand, and India. So thank you to everybody around the world listening right now. I cannot thank you enough. All right, finally in paranormal news, because I want to get actually get to this uh, episode at hand. So I'm going to make this the last story in paranormal news. I can save the rest for later. This one says aliens in bedroom, UFO sightings on the rise in Northern Ireland. God, I want to go to Ireland so bad. It looks like such a beautiful place. From mysterious disks over Slemish County in County Antrim. Sure, I got all of that wrong. To strange images spotted on CCTV, unexplained sightings increase in Northern Ireland again last year. Police received eight sightings in Northern Ireland during 2021, an increase from six... From 2020 and four in 2019, so still not as much as Connecticut, but it's growing. These included a report of a spaceship and flashing lights in the Downpatrick area on the Jan- on January 17th. In May, police received two sighting reports: one of white lights after a helicopter in the Magaberry area, and an odd disc seen in the sky in the Slemish County of of County Antrim at the end of the month. Boy, I'm butchering all your names. I'm sorry, and I just I just said I loved Ireland. In July, there was a report of strange images on CCTV in a house in the Newton Newton Abbey area and a dome-shaped object with eight lights in the sky reported in the St. Field area. In September, a report was received in the Lisburn area of aliens in the bedroom, while in October, a detained patient reported having been abducted by aliens. The final report of the year was unusual bright lights in the sky in November. UFO uh, sighting reports on the Police Services of Northern Ireland, PSNI, database, include unidentified flying objects, aerial phenomena, unidentified aerial phenomena, lights in the sky, and aliens and extraterrestrials. Uh PSNI spokesperson said no investigations have been carried out in relation to this incident. Nick Pope, who used to investigate reports of USO, UFO sightings for the Ministry of Defense, said it was possible that more people spending more time at home during the pandemic may account for a rise in reported sightings. It's difficult to say what, what lies behind the small increase in sightings, but... The lockdowns may have played a role. Yeah, I agree. Another possibility says that people are following the situation in the United States where Congress has taken the issue seriously and the Pentagon has launched a new UFO initiative. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. All righty, let's, uh, let's uh, wrap up the uh, paranormal news. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back into it. We are back. Alrighty, on this edition, let's take a look at a few UFO encounters that all happened in 1965. I'll be honest, I was just trying to find you something like, what happened in 1965? And be like, you know, the Beatles released blah, blah, blah album, but uh, it was taking too long. and So ultimately, if you want to find out what cool things happened in 1965, please check out this wonderful site called google.com. Alrighty, so 1965, it had a bunch of UFO encounters. Now, a couple of them I've talked about before, including the uh, Kexburg Bell, if you remember that episode. If you don't, go back and listen to it. Um, it, I don't think it's a patron exclusive, but it might be. And if so, become a patron if you want to listen to it. But what about the other sightings around the same time? How come so many UFOs were sighted around that area, the northeast of, of the United States, but around the world in 1965 there was a huge uptick in UFO sightings in 1965. Do they have any explanations? Well, well, you basically you got to wait and see. I'm not going to spoil the whole episode. Let me start this edition with a bit of an older paranormal news from 2019 about the American Northwest region for the, you know, it's the first the the place where the first two stories are going to take place. I figured oh this is kind of cool. It's about that area and it's about UFOs. So I lied to you when I said I was done with paranormal news. There's just one list, little one left, but it's part of the episode. Many UFO uh, sightings reported in Western Pennsylvania. This came from a, a website, uh, something news. It doesn't really say. August 3rd. Oh, here we are. WPXI News. August 3rd, 2019. While the Kecksburg UFO sighting has become a quaint part of local lore, more recent reports of unexplained aerial phenomena are getting serious attention from Congress, the U.S. military, and longtime UFO watchers. It's not going to go away. Whether you believe it or don't believe in this stuff, the fact remains there's a lot happening for some reason. So this person, who originally reported on the Kecksburg incident back in 1965, recently noted on his blog that the Navy has issued new guidelines, which you all know about, but that they have to start taking these things seriously. And he says Congress apparently is taking this stuff very seriously. Meanwhile, longtime local UFO researcher Stan Gordon said there's been a surge in sightings of unexplained phenomena in western Pennsylvania especially. We keep getting reports of very strange things that people see around here. We've had a surge of UFO and Bigfoot activity in the area in the past couple of weeks. Many of these sightings are very, very detailed reports. While sightings usually spike in the spring and summer when people are outside more, reports in 2018 and in 2019 have been more consistently year-round. Sightings are mostly of unexplained things in the sky or earthbound cryptids, animals such as Bigfoot, whose uh, existence is unsubstantiated. Well, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to do that to Bigfoot. Just say, you know, Bigfoot. Everybody knows what a Bigfoot is by now, people. Come on. Oh, by the way, don't and shoot Bigfoot. Uh, he said he spent the last 54 years investigating the Kecksburg incident. That was, here's a very, very brief synopsis of it. December 9th, 1965. People across six states and Canada reported seeing a fireball streak across the sky before crashing into a wooded area in Mount Pleasant Township. Again, 1965, UFOs. Northeast, which is where I'm going to be talking about in just a minute. He says, though other sightings didn't get the attention of Kecksburg, they still persist, and they even get documented on his website. He first set up a hotline to report sightings in Pennsylvania back in 1969. In all these years I've done this, I've never seen a UFO or Bigfoot myself, but I've interviewed thousands of witnesses every year. We're getting very detailed reports from credible people that cannot be easily dismissed. Upon investigation, many sightings ended up either being natural or man-made, like a bear or a large shaggy dog or a hunter-wearing camouflage, but... Some have no conclusive, logical explanation. The uh, most recent one is uh, that he reported on his uh, sightings, uh, Pennsylvania sightings on his website, is in June near the Youngstown side of Chestnut Ridge. The National UFO Reporting Center in Harrington, Washington, documents sightings from across the United States, Canada, the Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico. The the center's website, nuforc.org, ranks Pennsylvania 7th in total UFO sightings. 3,937 reported, dating back to 1947, and notes that sightings so far this year have nearly equaled the number of sightings from 2018. This was, again, written in 2019. There's an anonymous report from Greensburg that was most recent of unidentifiable lights moving slowly, perfectly spaced apart and of a red orange round object or cylinder moving east and west. This sighting uh, around 10 p.m., July 5th, lasted six full minutes. Other recent sightings from 2019 include July 4th, orange red sphere spotted around 10 p.m. in both Erie and Cecil County. June 28th, the person reported seeing a, a shiny silver disc or saucer overhead in Mount Lebanon at 8.35 p.m. After about 15 minutes, it disappeared. June 23rd, an Elizabeth resident reported seeing five amber-colored circular shapes move in all directions in the sky, then form an arrowhead shape before disappearing after four full minutes. So, as you can see, I'm not going to go through the rest of the article. It's, you know, what it is. But, as you can see, American Northwest blowing up. Absolutely blowing up. Alrighty, with that out of the way, that gives you an idea of what's happening in the Northeast. Including it, included 1965, but we're going all the way back to 1965 for this entire episode. Let's get to the first story. But I will say, for me personally, I think this first story is a huge grain of salt story because there's real, there's no real corroborating evidence, there's no full name, no last names at all. There's only one real name in it. Um, For one first name, that is. And all accounts of this happening are basically, there's a couple exceptions, but basically the same regurgitated, quote, air quote, details that are worded almost exactly the same from site to site to site to site. Now, normally, I wouldn't even put this on the show, but because of the dates, because of the location, I really feel that this could be a real UFO experience. And even though the details might be a little bit sparse, it could be because of how it was reported and the fact that it was reported on back in 1965 in Pennsylvania. There's a good chance that this guy came into the police station with this incredible story and only some of the details were written before the cops basically went, ah, this guy's nuts. I don't want to take this report, even though it could be a completely real report. So on this episode, for this story anyway, and another story coming up, but for this story, it's up to you to decide. Do you believe him or you don't believe him? Okay, once again, that date was June 15th, 1965. The place, New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Now, this was just seven months before that infamous Kecksburg Bell UFO encounter and just 38 miles away from it. This area was peaked. UFO activity. People were sighting them all over the place. These three teenagers, the story is about three teenagers. These three teenagers had heard stories of UFOs being spotted in their area. All right, so they're out. They're skateboarding. It was 7 p.m. Again, only one of the teens were named in this report. His name was Ron C., uh, they had just, they said they had just gotten back into an alley behind Ron's house where there was an empty field with a large elm tree. It's about 100 feet tall. It was at the far end of the lot. And as they reached the empty lot, just kind of, you know, skateboarding, being hooligans, they all noticed at the same time this huge metallic blue gray domed UFO hovering above the tree line. Now, one third of the bottom, they said, was a round, glowish, glowing reddish black pulsating, silently thing. So it wasn't a perfectly, you know, it wasn't a saucer. At the bottom of the dome, this thing kind of jutted out at the bottom. Like I said, it was uh, glowing. It was reddish black. It was pulsating silently. They said it glowed and pulsated every half a second from a deep red to a deep black to deep red. Now, it protruded out from the rest of the object. Basically... They said this, uh, there were, while they were looking at the UFO, a window appeared. Basically, the steel became transparent so they could see a window. And in that window, they saw the silhouettes of two human-looking figures. One was taller than the other. Now, some sites elaborate here and say that they appeared to be dark gray in color, but... Based on the majority of the sites, they said that they were only silhouettes. Ron said, I could only see the silhouette of these two. So I really think they were kind of just kind of embellishing the story by being like, and they were gray. Not yet. Calm down. All right. So Ron said he could only see them from the waist up, but they appeared to be waving. And he felt like they were either reading his mind or communicating telepathically with him. So Ron started waving like both his hands over his head to try and get their attention And he felt that they were reading his mind and acknowledged, like, oh, okay, I I see it. This kid's trying to get our attention. It's cool. But they also said, he said that he was, you know, not only was trying to do that, but he was mentally asking them if they would take him on board. And he says he thinks that's why he was chosen. Now, he also noted that as this was going on, he's waving his hands and playing, you know, mind in his mind, asking them, like, can you please take me on board? He noticed that his friends just stood there. They were either mesmerized or paralyzed. And he got the feeling, hey, we're not in any danger. I think I'm okay. And then the next memory he has was of seeing the UFO flying away. But he noticed that he was now standing facing his friends with them on his right, instead of standing in between them, all facing towards that elm tree, towards the UFO. So he's begging them, you know, like, hey, please, please take me on board. Next thing he can remember, now he's facing the other way, facing his friends. They're on the on his right, instead of him being between them, with no other memories. Now, the UFO took off in an instant and was gone. They all went like, whoa, that was crazy, that was weird. They all went home and noticed that it wasn't 7 p.m. like they said it was right before they saw the UFO, but it was now 10 p.m., and they were all late for getting back home. Seems like that's the end of the story, but it is not, because Ron began to slowly remember things over the next month, and he pieced together this. First thing he flash remembered was being inside the UFO. Once he remembered that, the memory started like trickling in. He started remembering more details, if you will, over the next month. He said he remembers sitting on an approximately eight foot tall or eight foot long, silver colored curved bench on board the actual UFO. There were two adults sitting next to him, but they also looked frozen or paralyzed. Now he remembered while sitting there, like, you know, he could move around, he could see stuff. So he notices the two frozen adults. Then he looks forward and he sees two humanoids. He said one was a man about six foot tall. The other was, quote, a beautiful woman, about five foot eight. They were both wearing like these silver form fitting jumpsuits. He said it was an all one piece jumpsuit, including their shoes. It had the same color as the outside of the UFO. So a bluish gray metallic. He said there was no collar on the suit, but it was up to the neck near the bottom. I don't know what that means. Uh, the woman had a brownish uh, the woman had brownish blonde hair, and he said it was long and flowing down to about one third of her back. And then he noticed she was smiling at Ron. So Ron gets up and walks towards them, and he saw them both at, at like a dome kind of panel, and they're waving the hands their hands over the panel. The woman stopped uh, waving her hands for a moment, walked over, and gave Ron a hug. Then went right back to the panel. Uh, Ron walked over to the man, noticed a panoramic window, and he said it was there was no like bolts or seams. Again, it was as, as if the metal had become transparent, and that when he looked out the window, he could see stars, and that's when he realized they were in space. He was in the UFO, and that was it. That's right. The next memory he had was of him standing there facing his friends. Now, I'm going to say this, just my personal opinion, but this next bit is dumb. And again, I think it was added to embellish the story. But apparently, Ron has said, when he said this, no idea, it doesn't say anywhere. But Ron has said, humanity will be experiencing some profound and world-shaking revelations that will forever change how everybody thinks about the UFO phenomenon. Where did he say it? To whom did he say it? When did he say it? What's his last name? No idea. I can't find anything else on this guy. And trust me, I really looked. Alrighty, so there you go. Decide for yourself if you believe Ron's tale of the UFO abduction. Although, I wouldn't really call it an abduction. He mentally asked if he could have a ride. It all seemed pleasant. He got a hug from like a beautiful woman. He said, oh, she was hot. So I don't know what you would call that. It sounds to me like he asked for a ride, and they went, all right, let's give him a ride, and then they brought him back home. So you decide you believe in that tale. All right, the next one has way more details, and it takes place on September 3rd, 1965, 2 a.m. near Exeter, New Hampshire. That's when 18-year-old Norman Muscarello was hitchhiking to his home in Exeter along New Hampshire Route 150. Now, he did this 10-mile hitch often from his girlfriend's parents' home in nearby Amesbury, Massachusetts. He said he did have a ride home this time, but he missed it, so he had to hitch a ride back. But because it was 2 a.m., he basically had to walk most of the way. But he got to uh, Kensington, New Hampshire. Now, I want to be very clear. Do not confuse it with the first story, which was New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Different place, even though it's still 1965. Completely different place. This is Kensington, New Hampshire. That's when he said he noticed five flashing bright red lights in the distance. Now, he initially thought that the lights might be like a police car, maybe a fire engine, some kind of like siren, basically. And uh, here's Norman from an interview himself. I wanted to add a lot of it because he really tells it exactly how it was. And then I'll go back and kind of fill in some details. So Norman said, "Uh, I was near Mrs. Mr. Dining's Farm. It was a clear night, no rain. There were plenty of stars in the sky. It was just a clear, beautiful night. I'd missed a ride and I was thumbing back. No cars pick you up at that hour of the morning. I observed planes in the sky earlier. It's pretty easy for me to understand the difference between a plane and what I saw. I'm sure if you experienced it, there wouldn't be any question in mind. I just got past the dining farm. There's a little field on the right-hand side. You can kind of see the glow of Hampton Beach and the lights from the beach, which is distinguishable What I'm trying to say is, you can see what's going on. It's pretty obvious that's the beach area. He continues and says, I observed pulsating lights coming from the north, heading in a southwesterly direction towards where I was. I assume the speed must have been something terrific because it came up on me all of a sudden, like this. Very distant, pulsating erratically. I couldn't make out any distinct patterns, circles, or anything like that. It was just very bright. Could not make out a silhouette at all. I didn't know what it was. There was absolutely no sound. Other than the fact that I heard horses in Dining's Field raising holy hell, kicking the barn. Crickets seemed to be just quiet. My attention was fixed on these lights. I didn't know what it was. Passed over, kind of like disappeared. I don't know what direction it went in. I was kind of dazed. My eyes were like, you know, seeing spots. You go through when somebody takes your picture with a camera. Got my eyes cleared. Son of a gun. Here it comes again. I don't have to tell you, you get kind of nervous out there. I mean, I'm all alone. There's nobody else standing there to refer to. I mean, is this guy smoking something? I just froze up. I didn't quite know what to do. I got scared. He goes on to say, I ran across the street. I actually didn't dive. I fell because I tripped on something and I fell into the ditch. And I lay there with my head down. And I looked up and it was like the whole side of this house, which was next door, the house, the next house down from the dining's. I didn't know how many, I didn't know the people at the time that lived there, but I found out that it was Mr. Russell later on. The whole side of the building seemed to be turned down like a blood red from the lights. And yet the lights weren't completely all red either. It was a White House, and these were lights were pulsating in erratic positions. I couldn't make out any design or silhouette at all, and then it took off. I didn't even know what direction it took off in because I had my head down after that. I got up out of the ditch and I ran to the house, pounding on the door like crazy. Later on, I discovered that Mr. Russell was awake. Mrs. Russell told me later that they were awake and they heard me pounding, but they're not going to answer the door with this crazy nut pounding at 2 o'clock in the morning. No car out front or anything like that, so they didn't bother answering. But they did remember me. Well, no responses there. I ran back out in the street, and here comes a car. I was not going to let it go by. I stood right in the middle of the road, waving my arms. This fellow and his, I assumed his wife at the time, came to find out I did know the fellow. The reason I've never disclosed his name is because it wasn't his wife in the car. He goes on to say, this is true. I mean, I'm not going to disclose his name now. He sat out in the front of the station after bringing me to the station, police station, that is, because he was kind of curious. He didn't know if I was cracking up or what. So I went into the Exeter police station. I told Scratch Toland, that's his nickname, not his real name, what happened as rapidly as I could. I was a nervous wreck. He wasn't surprised because I asked him, "Well, what do you mean you're not surprised?" And he said, "I just had two reports before you walked in here, one from Raymond and one from uh, another one from Hampton Beach. Both of these people had made a description damn close to what I saw." "Oh, sorry, darn close," he said. "One woman being uh, one woman being chased in a car on route whatever. I think it was 101 Raymond. Anyway, headed in this direction and another called in from the Hampton Police Department via phone." Exeter got Exeter got hold of the dispatch on it. A gentleman had called from a phone booth and they asked, what is the number? Where are you at? He described pretty much the same thing I had seen when the police pulled up to the phone booth. The phone was dangling and there was nobody around. I assume he probably just got scared and said, I don't want anybody to think I'm a nut. And I want, you know, I want you people to know the only reason I went to the police station was because I thought I was cracking up. So Norman estimated the UFO that he saw to be 80 to 90 feet in diameter. And that's very important for later on the skeptics thing I'm going to tell you. He said this thing was 80 to 90 feet in diameter. He said it. He ran into the Russell's home, like he said, pounded on the door, like he said, and yelled for help, but no one answered. And he's honest. The Russell's did say later on that they did hear him at the door, but they were way too frightened to open it. Now at the police station, Scratch, remember Scratch? Toland, he radioed police officer Eugene Bertram Jr., Bertrand Jr., who earlier in the evening had passed a distressed woman sitting in her car on NH-108. So he got it a little bit wrong, but not 101, it's 108. Now, when Bertrand stopped asking if she had a problem, the woman told him that a huge object with flashing red lights had followed her car from Epping about 12 miles away and hovered over her car for a minute before flying away. Now, Bertrand admitted at the time, he thought she was a kook. But he did stay for approximately 15 minutes until she calmed down enough and was ready to resume her drive. Okay, back to Norman's interview for this part. He said, well, you see, after scratch, had told me all this. He got on the blower, the police radio, and here comes a cruiser. Gene Bertrand pulled up and said, come on, I want to see what you're talking about. The only reason I'm following up on this is because we've had other reports. He said, otherwise, Norman said, otherwise, they would have sent me home. Alrighty, so Gene Bertram and Norman, they went up to the same spot where all of this had taken place. He said, he and I got out of the cruiser. He had a good sized seal beam flashlight. We were on our way into the field. He wanted to actually go right down into the field and look around. You could see the whole field from the road, but he wanted to do that anyway. Before we got out to where he had, where he had stopped, another cruiser pulled up. This was Officer David Hunt. Now, I think he's working for the Northampton Police Department now. And um, he said, hey, guys, I'm from Missouri. I got to see it. What you've been drinking, fellas? I can hear him up there rattling. The first one to open his mouth was Dave Hunt. He said, what the hell is that? We look up and yep, here comes the UFO again. I don't know what it is. Gene actually reached for his gun. He He had it out of his holster. He said, at the time, I was more afraid of the gun than that thing because I know what the gun can do. He said, so we boogied back to the cruiser. Gene got on the the radio again and says, Scratch, I see the damn thing myself. After that, it was taking me home. He said that uh, the police officers took him back to his house and his mother was having a fit because A, she didn't know where he'd been, but B, she saw this cruiser pull up and says, what did you do now? Uh, one thing I liked about this guy Norman is that he has turned down um, money or has not made a dime. I should say, off of telling his story. It was written. Uh, it was there was a book written about it and everything. But Norman has never made a cent off of this, and he said, "I've never made a penny on this thing, and it's the truth. Not one red cent." I'll tell you why I'm glad I didn't, because I think it makes me more believable, and I'm glad I'm not crazy. I'm glad somebody else who was responsible and credible saw it that night. Not just myself going and thinking for the rest of my life, like, am I a nut? I've been called a number of things. I would have believed myself. I would have believed myself that I had something loose up there if someone else hadn't seen it. So, yeah, two police officers and this guy. This guy had a couple of sightings, but two police officers also had the sighting. Two reputable, credible police officers also saw this thing 80 to 90 feet in diameter. Alrighty. Let's see. Um, to this day, he says, uh, Norman says to this day, what I've said is recorded in the archives in Washington, DC. This story cannot be explained scientifically at all. There were a few of your skeptics at first swamp gas, or somebody had an antenna. It was sparking with the high tension wires. I'm just telling you what I saw. Alrighty. Like now let's go back to the official story. So we left off with them at the field. There was two police officers and Norman. They walk into the field. They noticed that uh, one of the police officers said that they noticed the horse in a nearby corral began kicking the fence and the sides of a barn, making loud, frightening noises. Dogs in the area also started barking and howling. And that's when Officer Bertrand and Norman had that second sighting. Now, Bertrand described the UFO as this, quote, this huge dark object as big as a barn over there with red lights flashing on it. The object moved silently, didn't make a sound, and it moved towards them, swaying back and forth. Instinctively remembering his police training, Bertram dropped to one knee, drew his revolver, and pointed at the object. He then decided that shooting would not be wise, so he reholstered the revolver, grabbed Norman, and ran back to the patrol car. Bertram radioed another Exeter policeman, Officer David Hunt we talked about a little bit ago, for assistance, and while the two waited in the car... Uh, For Hunt to arrive, they continued to observe the UFO as it hovered 100 feet away and at 100 feet altitude. It rocked back and forth. The pulsating red lights flashed in rapid sequence, first from right to left, then left to right, each cycle consuming no more than two seconds. The local animals continued to be agitated. They said that the object was still there when Hunt arrived, and he also watched it. The UFO finally rose up over the trees and disappeared. Hunt soon heard the engines of a B-47 bomber as it flew overhead, and he later told journalist John G. Fuller that, quote, you could tell the difference between the UFO and the bomber. There was no comparison. All three men drove back to the Exeter police station and immediately filed separate reports on what they had saw. Bertrand then drove Norman back home, told his mother all about the incident, blah, blah, blah. All righty, so the Exeter police chief finally gets word of what everybody's been freaking out about at the station and what they saw. And so he reads the reports from Bertram, Hunt, and Norman. He decides, you know, I got to get an official answer. So he calls Pease Air Force Base. Now the Air Force Base sent Major David Griffin and Lieutenant Alan Brandt to interview the three men and even asked all three men to not report their sightings to the press. Problem here is it was too late. A reporter from the Manchester Union Leader newspaper had already interviewed them. Now it's reported that Major Griffin sent a report of the incident to the staff of, you guessed it, Project Blue Book. That's right. We're still in the 60s. Project Blue Book is still in full effect. Project Blue Book gets the uh, reports, reads them all. And Major Griffin wrote, at this time, I have been unable to arrive at a probable cause of this sighting. The three observers seem to be stable, reliable people, especially the two policemen. I uh, viewed, or he called them patrolmen. I viewed the area of the sighting and found nothing in the area that could be the probable cause. Pease Air Force Base had five B-47 aircraft flying in the area, but I do not believe they had any connection with the sightings. So again, remember that is from the Air Force Major that was sent from Pease Air Force Base directly to Project Blue Book. So what was Project Blue Book's official explanation? Well, that the three men had seen, quote, nothing more than stars and planets twinkling, owing to a temperature inversion. That's it. Project Blue Book said that Operation Big Blast, a training mission, had been active on the night of the sighting and that it would have accounted for the UFO because Project Blue Book supervisor, USAF Major Hector Quintanilla wrote Policemen Bertrand and Hunt that, quote, in addition to aircraft from his operation, big blast, there were also five B-47 aircraft flying in your area during this period. Since there were so many aircraft in the area and at that time, and there were no reports of unidentified objects from the personnel engaged in the operation, you guys saw that operation. He did note that uh, if, however, these aircrafts were noted by either of you, this would tend to eliminate the air operation as a possible explanation of the objects observed. Yeah, right. That's exactly it. They all said they saw the UFOs for a while. It was completely silent, the size of a barn, 80 to 90 feet across. Then, after those, not immediate, not behind, not like it was part of the same area, but after it took off, they saw the B-47. The woman said, these lights went right up over her ho- uh, her car and stayed there, hovered for a minute silently and then took off again. This part I do really like, I gotta say, that the uh, the two policemen, well, they found out about that official explanation and they were like, nope, not even. So they actually sent a letter to Project Blue Book in which they stated, quote, as you can imagine, we have been the subject of considerable ridicule since the Pentagon released its, quote, official evaluation of our sighting on September 3rd, 1965. In other words, both patrolman Hunt, and myself saw this object at close range, checked it out with each other, confirmed and reconfirmed that it was not any type of conventional aircraft. And we also went to considerable trouble to confirm that the weather was clear, there was no wind, no chance of weather inversion, and that what we were seeing was in no way a military or civilian aircraft. Bertrand also noted that their UFO sighting took place nearly an hour after Operation Big Blast was said to have ended, which eliminated the operation as a possible cause of the sighting. Not surprisingly, you know, Project Blue Book just kind of said, oh, they didn't respond really. Then on December 29th, 1965, basically four months after the sighting, the two men sent another letter to Project Blue Book in which they wrote that the objects they'd observed was, quote, Absolutely silent, with no rush of air from jets or chopper blades whatsoever. And it did not have any wings or a tail. It lit up the entire field, and near and two nearby houses turned completely red from the lights. I like these guys, man. They stood up for themselves. So, John G. Fuller, that journalist I was talking about a second ago. Uh, He interviewed a number of people in the Exeter area who also claimed to have witnessed the strange lights from around that time, including Ron Smith, who was a senior at Exeter High School, who told them that about two or three three weeks after Norman's sighting, he was traveling with his mother and aunt in the car. It was one evening, it was about 1130 at night, when they saw an object with, quote, red lights on top, and the bottom was white, and it glowed. It appeared to be spinning. It passed over the car once, and when it passed over, it got in front. It stopped in mid-air. Then it went back over the car again. Officer Toland told that same journalist, Fuller, of a number of calls that they received from the Exeter area evening that night regarding UFOs. Like Mrs. Ralph Lindsay, she called in here early, just before dawn, said it was right outside her window as she was calling with something like a big, big orange ball, almost as big as the harvest moon, and it wasn't the moon either. All the time she was talking to me, her kids were at the window watching it. Now, why would people go to all this trouble, people all over the area, if it wasn't something real? Luckily, or thankfully, however you want to word it, this guy, John Fuller, the uh, the reporter, he also didn't believe the official explanation. He wrote that he had observed an unusual object near Exeter himself while doing this report, and it was being chased by an Air Force jet fighter. Now, Raymond Fowler the New England investigator for the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, also filed a, a very detailed report on the Exeter sightings. In his view, the Air Force explanation was also incorrect. At one point, an Air Force officer claimed the UFOs people were seeing were merely lights from, from the nearby Air Force base, and that was it. To prove it, he had the lights activated before a large crowd were gathered some distance away. But... He had ordered personnel at the base to turn the lights on. Everyone looked and waited, and nothing happened. Frustrated, he yelled into the mic to turn on the lights. A voice replied, the lights are on. And they said, well, that was about it. He, the very embarrassed officer slunk back into the seat of a staff car and drove away while the crowd laughed at him. Womp, womp. All then we're going to move forward just a little bit, staying with the same story, to January 1966. Lieutenant Colonel John Spaulding from the office of the Secretary of the Air Force finally replied to the two policemen's, uh, the policemen's two letters. Spaulding wrote, quote, based on additional information submitted to our UFO investigation officer at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, we have been unable to identify the objects you observed on September 3rd, 1965. That's right. The Lieutenant Colonel from Wright-Patterson, admitted they were not able to identify the objects that were observed September 3rd, 1965. This UFO story should be way bigger than it is. I know that was a very lengthy story. Um, It's not even done yet. I'll I'll get to a little bit more in a second, but uh, I'm glad you guys kind of stuck with it because this was one of the biggest stories. Again, three witnesses Immediate witnesses, two of them police officers, one of them just a guy hitchhiking. Then, separate from them, you had another woman and another guy. People were seeing these things all over the place around that same time. All right, for you skeptics, though, here is Joe Nichols' explanation. If you don't know who he is, he's a well-known skeptic and a debunker. I kind of liked his theory, but I got to say, it doesn't explain 99% of what was saw that night. So this guy, Joe Nichols, he spoke with James McGeha, who was a major USAF retired Air Force pilot. He had been he had been refueled in flight by Kc-97 tanker aircrafts like the one stationed at Pease Air Force Base near Exeter around that same time in 1965 and he said, "I recognize the flashing light pattern reported by the witness Bertrand and Norman. He said, I recognize." The light, flashing light pattern reported by Bertrand and Normand. The 123454321. Now, according to him, before refueling, the underbelly of a KC-97 tanker flashes five very bright red lights in that same pattern. The refueling boom hung down at a 60-degree angle and would flutter in the air currents when not being controlled by the boom operator, hence floating like a leaf. Okay, well that's that's an interesting theory. That's better than you know Project Blue Book's theory, but it doesn't explain ninety nine percent of the incident. Not even close. That I, I seriously doubt that that boom is ninety feet across. Both both Bertrand, um, all three of the guys, the the two cops, uh, Hunt and uh, whatever, Bertrand Hunt and Norman, all said this thing was huge. They could see it. It wasn't a you know, a fuel line hanging from a plane. Plus, if it was hanging from a plane, how come it was completely silent? And how come it hovered? As far as I'm aware, a KC-97 tanker aircraft can't hover. Definitely can't hover for well over a minute over a woman's car. And also look like a ginormous 90-foot UFO. It just doesn't match up. Not even close. But like I said, interesting theory I'll put it out there for the skeptics, but nope. Again, as far as I'm concerned, this story is one of the best UFO incidents out there just because the wide variety of people that saw it and reported on it and the fact it was so reported so well, again, being for 1965. Okay, from there, let's go to November 9th, 1965. Look, they're all in 1965, Kurt. You don't have to keep saying that, but I will. November 9th, 1965. Now, it has an explanation, but I'm going to present everything to you. And again, you can decide for yourself on this one as well. Oh, and this one was all around the Northeast. This thing was huge. You'll see what I'm talking about in a second. And the date might actually, you know, already might be piquing your interest. Like, I know what happened on November 9th, 1965, because it was a very huge story. Okay, this one happens at dusk. Or to be more specific... 5.30 p.m., rush hour, November 9th. That's when a massive blackout occurred. It was one of the largest power failures in history. It hit all of New York State. Imagine that. All of New York State blacked out. But not only that, it hit portions of seven nearby states, including Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, New Jersey, and parts of eastern Canada. This thing was huge. It was the most, like I said, it was one of the largest power failures in history. Blacked out seven states, two countries. It also trapped 800,000 people in New York's subways. It also stranded thousands more in office buildings, elevators, trains, you name it. They actually had to uh, deploy 10,000 National Guardsmen and 5,000 off-duty policemen. They really thought it was going to be like just a massive looting. When, when all these states went black, they were like, oh, crap, massive looting. But surprisingly, besides the fact that people freaked out because they were trapped in a... I can't even imagine being trapped in a subway for that long. But besides that part of it, it was relatively peaceful. Now, the blackout was caused by tripping... By the tripping of a 230 kilovolt transmission line near Ontario, Canada, at exactly 5.16 p.m. Now, this caused several other heavily loaded lines to also fail. Basically, it was just like a domino effect. Once this huge 230-kilovolt transmission line went out, boom, then the next one, the next one, the next one. They said this precipitated a surge of power that overwhelmed the transmission lines in western New York, causing, quote, a cascading tripping of additional lines. It resulted in the eventual breakup of the entire Northeastern Transmission Network, in case you're into that. But, why the hell am I talking about it on this episode? Besides the fact it happened in 1965? Well, a lot of people blame the blackout on UFOs. Real quick, why do people think it was UFOs? Well, besides all of the UFO reports in the area that affected around that time... There are some that are actually connected to November 9th itself in the area. That's right. And remember, it's a big area. November 9th, 1965, 5 p.m., a Middleton, New York resident reported seeing a ball of bright green light in the sky. He says he thinks it's a UFO. 5 p.m. in Jersey City, New Jersey, a resident reported seeing a bright object moving from north to south over Manhattan, then over lower Manhattan. He said the object shot shot straight up at an extreme velocity. Okay, Kurt here. That one? That one sounds like a legit UFO. The first one, a bright green light in the sky? That sounds like a power, you know, big huge arc from a power failure, basically. Um, From a grid or whatever you want to call it. But the second one, there is nothing with a power outage that causes it to go... Uh, moving from north to south over Manhattan, then over lower Manhattan, then shooting straight up at, quote, an extreme velocity. So that one, that's UFO-like. All righty, continuing on. 5 p.m., a resident of Newton, Massachusetts, reported a bright fireball traveling east to west. Okay, but, again, this is kind of what happened when massive power grids failed. But he says no. He saw it. It was a UFO. All right. Next one. 5 p.m. Orchestra conductor on a flight between Syracuse and Rochester observed a bright light descend toward central New York. All right. Descend is kind of odd. Very, very weird. Continuing on. You notice a pattern here? 5 p.m. Camillus, New York. A housewife reported a huge dome-shaped object near a local substation about five minutes before the blackout. All right. Not an electrical arc there. Five minutes before the blackout, she reported it. She saw it, then noticed the blackout didn't happen for another full five minutes. No idea about that one. That one again, it sounds like a UFO. Continuing on, 5 p.m., Cicero, New York. A local pilot in a small plane reported seeing a huge bright light hover near the high-tension wires crossing the Mohawk River. Okay, that sounds like a power failure to me. 5 p.m., personnel from Sir Adam Beck Hydroelectric Power Plant in Ontario, Canada, report four strange lights over the power plant, not surge-related, prior to the outage. Okay, again, these guys would know. They work at a hydroelectric power plant. That's interesting. 5 p.m., residents near Niagara Falls Power Station reported seeing a huge glowing object hovering over the power station, Prior to the blackout. Okay, let me keep going. 5 p.m. People in the Time Life building on 6th Avenue reported seeing a glowing, quote, spindle shape in the sky. Now, a Life magazine reporter even took a photo of it and ran a shot in their next issue in the Life magazine. Now, a woman just north of Manhattan reported seeing, quote, a disc a disc hovering and going up and down and then shooting away from New York just after the power failure. That doesn't sound like, uh, (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't, that doesn't sound like it was part of an electrical power failure. That's weird. That's really weird. And that's not even the end of them. There are so many more, but you get the idea. That's just a little bit of UFOs reported seeing near the areas most affected by the power outage. Some, all actually, 5 p.m. prior to the actual outage. The actual outage didn't happen until 5.16 p.m. 5.30 p.m. is when it hit Midtown New York, but I'm guessing it's closer to 5.16 because it can't be that. It's, you know, such a cascading effect. I'm sure it was real close after 5.16. But again, that's 16 minutes after All of these UFO reports. So what the hell were these people seeing? If they were really seeing the power grid fail in so many of these locations, why did it take an additional 16 minutes before the power grid actually failed? Before it really started to arc everywhere and start going out? It's a bizarre one. But I wanted to add what an electrical expert has said. He recently wrote on a website about this incident... That he, could, that he was able to debunk some of those UFO reports. He said the brilliant red UFO seen at the Syracuse, Syracuse, New York clay substation was probably an electrical arc from the 248 MV power lines to a tree. This would have been caused by the huge sudden voltage surge when the Adam Beck lights cut out. Uh, halation in the eye would have made the image seem larger and closer. Sure, why not? Sounds like something. Another possible cause, the brilliant red UFO is something too high on an is something too high on a New York Central train since the lines cross over the tracks at that location. He said instead of UFOs causing the power failures, in reality, the power failures tend to cause what people thought were UFOs. Maybe, but not all of them. Again, power arcs and big, you know, green lights in the sky, glowing lights in the sky or or smoke, sure. That is all connected to this power outage. And it was a huge power outage. But people reported seeing saucers, disc shapes, things going straight up into the sky, things that do not happen during power failures. So again, I ask you, what do you think? Did the power failure cause the UFOs or did the UFOs cause the power failures or... Using that whole, like, theory that uh, UFOs are really time travelers. I don't know if you heard the theory. If you're a regular listener, I'm sure you have. Maybe the UFOs that appeared were there just to witness this massive power failure, the largest in history. I know it's a bizarre theory, but, uh, you know, it's still a theory. So it's up to you guys. You have to decide on that one too. You have to. I'm sorry. I didn't know if you guys know this, but when you listen to this podcast, there is homework and you will have to decide. You can't say, well, I don't know. Nope. Got to pick a lane to continue on in this episode. And there's only one more story. So it's not the big, you know, you can do it if you want. All righty. Let's move away from uh, the American Northeast for a minute and head on over. Oh, I forgot to look it up. I think it's called Valensol in France. If it's not, it's spelled Valence. It's still in France. If you're, if you're from France and I really said it wrong, don't, don't correct me. I'm admitting that I'm dumb. It's fine. All right, this one was July 1st, 1965. Remember, all from 65. That's when farmer Maurice Mass said he was smoking a cigarette just before starting work at 5.45 a.m. when an object came out of the sky and landed in a lavender field 200 feet away from him. He said he was initially annoyed and kind of just pissed and assumed that a helicopter had made some kind of unauthorized landing for some reason. So he goes walking up towards it and it said it was, nope, no helicopter, but an oval shaped structure resting on four legs. He said it was as big as a Renault, as a Renault Dauphine automobile. Just look up Renault Dauphine. Uh, it's a car. He said it was a, as big as a car. Now in front of it stood two figures. He said they were both not quite four feet tall. They were dressed in tight gray-green clothes. Their heads were oversized with very sharp tw- sh- uh, ah, very sharp chins. Their eyes were large and slanted, and they were making, quote, a grumbling noise while they were crouching and observing some plants. Now, one of the beings pointed a pencil like he, you know, he's, as he's getting closer, they notice him. They're startled. They're like, whoa. One of the beings pointed a pencil like device at, uh, Mar, at Maurice, paralyzing him in his tracks. He said the being then put his weapon thing down and began talking or grumbling with the other one again. And he said, Maurice said this, you know, this gave me a chance to actually see the beings better. Even though I was frozen, I was still facing them and I could watch what they were doing. He said they were just about one meter high. Their skin was smooth slightly white, and apparently not covered by hair or a coat. Their head was big, with almost no neck, and the eyes were just like human eyes, despite the absence of eyelids. They were wearing dark blue clothing. The aliens got back in the UFO, and in the time... Oh, I'm sorry. They got back in the UFO and into the transparent cupola. He said he could see them at the controls, and then they flew away. Now, in its wake, the UFO left a deep hole and a moist area that soon hardened like concrete on the ground. Now, days later, the lavender in that part of the field began to uh, just die for no reason whatsoever. Within a five to six meter area around the spot that turned into like a concrete, the lavender just started to die. He said that the uh, where the UFO had landed, the effects from that incident were felt for full eight years. An analysis found a higher amount of calcium at the landing site than elsewhere. So, yeah. It's a short but sweet one. Oh, I actually do have more. You know what? I'm going to keep going. I was going to stop there, but that's yeah, fine. It's the first episode of 2022. Let's keep on keeping on. Hopefully you're enjoying this episode, otherwise this is just torture for you. All righty, this is the last one, I promise. Now, this is a more of a this is more of a detail-oriented military report. Not a ton of exposition, but I thought this one was kind of neat just because of the location it happened at. Again, 1965, July 16th. The Defense Intelligence Agency of America, they intercepted four messages from the Argentine Navy Hydrographic Service concerning UFOs sighted in Antarctica. That's right. UFOs were spotted over Antarctica in 1965. They said that the messages were from from Commander Argentine Base at Deception Island. I didn't even know there was a Deception Island. And it was sent to a commander at Orchids, Lowry Island, South Orkney Island. I don't know. Said the messages were about a bunch of UFOs seen by him and his personnel, though. And mentioned reports that the British and Chilean bases at Deception Island have also reported UFOs around that same time. Uh, Let's see. Tuesday, July 6, 1965, Argentine Navy released the following statement to news medias about the sightings. The Navy garrison in the Argentinian Antarctica Deception Island observed on July third at 1940 hours a giant lens-shaped flying object, solid in appearance, mostly red and green in color, changing occasionally with yellow, blue, white, and orange shades. The object was moving in a zigzag trajectory towards the east, but several times it changed its course to the west and the north with varied speeds and without sound. It passed at an elevation of 45 degrees above the horizon at a distance estimated to be about 10 to 15 kilometers from the base. So this thing was close. During the maneuvers performed by the object, the witnesses were able to register its change in velocity and also the fact that it hovered motionlessly. The meteorological conditions of the area of the sighting can be considerable as far as very good for the time of the year. Clear sky, couple of clouds, moon in the last quarter, perfectly visible. The object was witnessed by the meteorologist together with 10 members of the garrison. That's right, 11 people, scientists in Antarctica, watched this UFO as it changed directions and speeds, colors, and they watched it for 15 to 20 minutes. And they said photographs of the object were taken, but I couldn't find any that were reputable in my mind. They said that in the afternoon of the same day, the same object was spotted by the Argentinian base on the South Orkney Islands, moving towards the Northwest. Um, and then in a radio bulletin broadcast on Wednesday, July 7th, 1965, Lieutenant Daniel Paris confirmed the sightings. They said the garrison observed an extremely brilliant object moving towards the north with variable speeds, sometimes hovering, displaying sudden accelerations and change of direction. The characteristics of the object and its motion were such that the possibility of a weather balloon, a plane, or a star were ruled out. These people were working on military bases in Antarctica. They know what a weather balloon looks like, what a plane looks like, what the stars up there look like. He said, the sighting took place during the night hours in total darkness, attenuated only by some moonlight. The attempt to photograph the object was doomed to failure considering the low sensitivity of the film, used, the distance, and blah, blah, blah. It's 1965, they had limited technology, basically. Now, one document uh, from the U.S. Air Attaché office in Santiago, Chile, on July 23rd, stated that Chilean nationals stationed at an Antarctic base had seen the object as well zigzag across the sky, sometimes hovering and changing color from red to yellow to green on two separate days. How crazy cool is that? Uh, there was another uh, guy in the Argentinian base, Corporal Yulia Deslau Duran Martinez. He says he took 10 color photos and they turned out. Where are those photos? Uh, civilian meteorologist George Stanich observed for five seconds a stationary object, colored a clear, brilliant yellow. Uh, He saw it for five seconds, going from true north, basically straight up, basically. Uh, About a week later, another strange object was, uh, was sighted June 18th. More personnel at the base of the Pedro Aquira Cerda saw a celestial body but this one was probably explained, and I'll tell you about the explanations in just a minute. But there's that's the only one so far that has a possible explanation. Uh, let's see another base. A bunch, a bunch of other meteorologists on, this, on Antarctica saw the object as well. One saw the object maneuver rapidly for 25 minutes over the island. Um, they said it was two members of the base. They watched it moving in different directions, zigzagging, different speeds, different directions. Definitely not a weather balloon. Uh, It just keeps going. I mean, there's just more and more and more of these. But for you skeptics, some of the UFOs seen in the Antarctic may have been explained because a report from later on noted that the sightings, there may be a connection between some of the sightings and the U.S. space program. A check with NASA indicated that the object from 1965, 46D, and 46E were part of a launch and a decay back into re-entry. Basically, they launched a rocket on these dates and it re-entered roughly around that area. They would have watched, been able to watch the re-entry. But that does not explain the majority of the sightings in Antarctica. Rockets re-entering don't hover. They're not silent. They don't change directions and speeds. Don't go on for 25 minutes in a direction over the island, not falling. So it doesn't really explain the majority of the uh, the UFOs seen over Antarctica in 1965. I hope you guys like this one. I really do. Because this episode took forever for me to get all of the data and information and kind of debunk some of this stuff. So I really hope you guys appreciated this one. This is as in-depth as I can get into a lot of these UFOs that were sighted in 1965. I think it's a very cool time. uh, As you just saw, or just heard, not saw, you know, the space race was really kicking off. Like, this was the time of the... For maybe the reason that a lot of these were seen was because of some of these amazing events that were happening in human history at that time. All righty. Well... What do you guys think? Do you believe any of these UFO stories? Did I just waste my time on any of these stories? I don't know what I think about Ron's. I'll be honest. Ron's just seemed too lost in space for me. You know, oh, there was a hot woman, and there was a guy, and they were both wearing silver shimmery suits, and she hugged me, I swear, man. But the rest of them? I don't know. Definitely definitely the one with the two cops and Norman. That was The most reputable, in my opinion. I don't know what to think about all of the UFOs seen all over the Northeast around before and after the power outage, the massive power outage. I don't know what to think. So, well, there you have it. There's a whole lot of UFO for you. For those that don't like UFO episodes, don't worry. I've got paranormal stuff, you know, in the works. I've got cryptid stuff in the works. I've got ghost stuff in the works. I've got more hauntings in the works. Don't worry. We'll get back to those. For those that do like UFO episodes, here you go. Here's an extra long episode all about UFOs just for you guys. Once again, I'm your host Kurt Savage and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. I want everybody out there to have a very happy, healthy 2022. I hope you guys made it through the uh uh the I hope you guys made it through the the holidays. Hold on, i want to bring the music up. With then. your host. Nope, nope, it's too early. It's too early, Kurt. It's too early. Can't bring the music up yet. There we go. I can bring the music up now. All right, so I hope you guys had a really good, happy, healthy new year. Um, Hope you guys made it through the holidays all right. I know depression is always really bad around the holidays. Just know the Paranormal Almanac is here for you as much as you guys are here for me. There's going to be more live episodes in 2022. Don't worry. I'm, I've got more planned. And a lot of cool stuff coming up. I hope you guys really, really like the new episodes that are coming up. Thank you all for listening. You are all the best.